Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Gabriela Santos joins us now, JP Morgan Asset Management Global Market Strategist. Anytime, Gabby, you are welcome in London. You know that. Let's just start with this market. What are you more concerned about this morning? We wake up, fiscal talks breaking down stateside, the other side of the Atlantic, more restrictions in Europe. Well, thank you, John, for the invitation. Um, in terms of the markets, um, so I think we're, we're trying to, to wrestle with two things at the same time here. The first is, as long-term investors, we're trying to position for where we're going over the next couple of years, which is we're in a brand new economic cycle, one that's coming with a lot of monetary and fiscal support that does not seem to be going away anytime soon, and one that's much more regionally diversified for that reason. So we're trying to position early cycle that's uh, overweighting equities, overweighting credit, and keeping it very regionally diversified. But we have to square that with some of these more short-term concerns over the next couple of months around the path of the virus, um, around when we get more fiscal support. And for that, I think you want to be a little bit less overweight than you normally would. So you uh, think about sizing the positions and then you still want to keep a certain amount of duration to offset some of the short-term uncertainty here. But overall, we're still thinking of an early cycle playbook, looking through some of the short-term noise. Uh, Gabriella, we oscillate back and forth between technology, large cap, you know you know the drill, 35% of NASDAQ 100 is three stocks. Okay, great. And then we go over to what institutional Wall Street wants to see, small cap, international, you know the drill, you're living it. When do we get that shift? Yes. And, and I mean, to the credit of, of large cap technology stocks, there, there is a reason they've done so well. It, it, it is logical. Uh, they contribute at this point close to a quarter uh, of earnings growth for the S&P 500. That's much more in line with their representation in the index at this point. So very different than the dot-com bubble. They have been doing very well during COVID. Seeing, we're expecting positive earnings growth for the tech sec sector in the third quarter. But I think we're all falling victims to a bit of a recency bias here, thinking that we'll forever live in this virtual world. And we just don't think that's the case. We have to believe that at some point we'll be able to leave the virus behind and we will want to go back to some sort of real interaction at some point in the future. Um, and, and the truth is cyclical stocks are priced as if we would never get back to that real life. So we are looking at valuation opportunities in things like industrials, materials, financials, um, residential and office REITs, uh, really to, to try to take advantage of that dislocation, thinking about the next couple of years. Residential and office REITs, that is brave, Gabriela Santos. <laughs> I'm wondering, the out you want to you wanna elaborate? I do. Okay, carry on. <laughs> Because I do think it's a, it's a great example uh, of this recency bias. When we look at the REIT sector, um, the only thing that's really done well this year is industrial REITs going along with the e-commerce theme because there's been so much spending on things like warehouses, going along with the tech theme, uh, with um, digital uh, storage. And then you have every other kind of REIT in deep negative territory. And I think you have a sweet spot there with residential and office where it's not an existential threat, unlike retail REITs. 
Um, and you do have the ability of people to eventually go back to the office. We are very big proponents of office culture. We think that's very, very important. Maybe you have a more flexible arrangement, but it's not something that you write off altogether. And remember, as a business, you still need to have availability for all of your employees to come in. So I think that's a great example of a dislocation that's happened beneath the market that we don't think is, is justified. Gabriela, so many people have come on the show and they talk about how financials feel underpriced, especially given the fact that we will eventually get a recovery. They just reported earnings. JP Morgan, your bank, uh, beat expectations. So did a host of other banks, and yet their shares have gotten still beaten up. Why? <clears throat> Yes, and I think that's uh, an interesting point about the uniqueness of this cycle versus previous cycles. Um, we have fresh in our minds last cycle, the financial sector was really at, at, at the epicenter, an existential threat, and that's just not the case this time. The troubles elsewhere in, in travel, leisure, and hospitality. So it's not an existential threat for the financial sector. What we're missing is really a catalyst to get stock prices off of their still bear market territory. Um, we were thinking that uh, the decrease in loan loss provisions could be that catalyst because it signals the potential for bottoming in earnings for the big banks. I think the trouble is just the messaging around that being still a bit uncertain and a bit dependent on the path of the virus and more fiscal support. But once we get more visibility, then you should have a recovery in the path of, of um, financial stocks. Gabby, we've got to leave it there. Looking forward to seeing you in London soon. Gabriela Santos. Looking forward to it. Morgan. Thank you. Thank you. Right now, Christopher Kotowski joins us with Oppenheimer, Managing Director, Senior Analyst on the banks, and he's got a varied and nuanced opinion here on the banks. Chris, what's the difference, the distinction between Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs? Well, actually, I put them uh, together. I put them more together than apart in, in the sense that, you know, compared to the ordinary commercial banks, they have a very small uh, loan portfolio. So what's interesting about those companies is that they're benefiting from the very active capital markets and capital raising, right? So trading this quarter, and actually for each of the first three quarters, trading was up about 20% year on year. But when you, you know, for the banks, you know, I think the banks are oversold and people are overly worried about the credit risk. Uh, in their loan portfolios, but however you feel about that, you know, basically Goldman and Morgan Stanley are going to miss that party for the most part, because you know that they Goldman and Morgan Stanley have a loan portfolio that is like between one and one and a half times tangible book, or, or to times their capital, whereas like most banks have a portfolio, loan portfolio that's like six, seven, eight times you know their their tangible capital, and on top of that, if you yeah. compare Morgan Stanley and Goldman. You know, they don't have a lot of credit cards. They don't have any small business lending. You know, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley both basically lend to either wealthy people or to large institutional companies, so, whether they're public or sponsor-backed. Chris, so what are you? Is what you're saying that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley are less well positioned for the upcoming uh, recovery that we may see in the global economy, and that the likes of J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and even Wells Fargo may be better positioned? No, well, I, I would say, look, as long as we're in this kind of uncertain environment, I think 
Goldman and Morgan Stanley are absolutely the lower risk way to play financials. Right. I mean, it, they can be the, the chicken's way of playing financials because you don't have a big loan portfolio. I mean, on the other hand, like if 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 you heard that there was a vaccine that is safe and effective and you heard that tomorrow, then you would probably be do much better in kind of the beat up lending banks uh, because they're down a whole bunch more and, you know, they would be affected more. Chris, on, on the upside. what's the catalyst for the rally in financials that so many people are expecting? Well, ultimately, it'll be when they get to buy back stock again, right? Because the, the valuations are really trodden down. But uh, the, 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 you know, their underlying level of profitability is still pretty good. I mean, there's been some pressure. Uh, there's been pressure on bank earnings from interest rates coming down. And the other thing that we saw, you know, with the big banks is that, you know, people have paid their credit cards down uh, like 12% since March. And, you know, credit card loans are obviously kind of the highest yielding earning assets that banks have. So that's all pressured revenues, right? But the good thing is, like, the bank credit quality has thus far been way, way, way better than anybody yeah. expected. So, right? So, I mean, the banks aren't in, pro okay. in trouble on that front. Chris, let's sum this up. We've had a bunch of bank earnings, as John Farrell uh, mentions. We're going to move forward. Are we going to have more Eaton Vances? Is there a massive desire too big to fail, super regionals, regionals, and on down. Is there a new need for scale, which simply means combinations? Uh, I mean, our, I, I, it's, it's long overdue, certainly in the banking Not sector. You know, I mean, we have an artificially fragmented banking sector because until the 1980s, you, you couldn't bank in more than one state. You know, so compared to any other country in the world, our, our, our banking sector is just way too fragmented. And, you know, so that makes sense. Uh, you know, I, I don't think you'll see a giant M&A wave near term. I think you'll see some, I think, but I think it'll be still episodic and sporadic. Chris, just a final question for me. How much are these names propped up by the fiscal effort down in Washington? Well, actually, I think the much bigger impact is just that white-collar layoffs haven't been that big. You know, and the thing is, if you look at like big bank credit card portfolios, uh, over 80% of the, the the borrowers have FICO scores over 680. So then that's roughly average. So you know, 80% is of of the borrowers are in the upper half of the income scale. And if you look at, unfortunately, the people who've gotten hit by COVID, it's mainly lower-income people who are not bank customers. You know, I think people really way underestimate how much the 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 bank customer uh has moved upscale i mean it, it just uh you know with a stress test and so on you basically can't lend to uh the lower half of the income spectrum and that's what's gotten hit so i actually think people have have way overplayed the importance of of the uh, of, of 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 those uh the, the, those programs mind you the ppp i think kept you know hundreds of thousands of, of small businesses afloat when it, you know, when, when lots of people, I think in April and May were thinking, oh God, we've got to just got to shut down. You know, so I think that's that just a slight helped. contradiction there, Chris, at the end of your response then. <laughs> well, I, I think the PPP helped, but I, I, I think it actually, yeah. I mean, if, if you, if you really look at, you know, why has the bank's credit experience been so good? 
it's because basically, you know, in, in, in a C-car world, they can no longer really lend to lower income people. They have to lend to people of, of means. Chris, great to catch up. Appreciate your time. Interesting perspective. Chris Kotowski there of Oppenheimer on some of these big names. It is a time of year where we set our calendars. That always means Francine Lacroix and myself in Washington for the meetings of David Malpass's World Bank and Ms. Gorgieva's International Monetary Fund. And one of the high points live in the atrium of the IMF is Vitor Gaspar with the International Monetary Fund. He is director of fiscal affairs and, of course, steeped in the tumult of the economics of his uh, Portugal. We're thrilled that Dr. Gaspar could join us for an update this morning. I loved your summary, Vitor. You went right to the heart of it, which is when private is on its back in a pandemic, it is public investment to the rescue. Why is this so difficult? Why is it so hard to commit public investment in democracies? Uh, So uh, thanks for having me, Tom. Uh, We do make a very strong case for public investment in the fiscal monitor. We argue that in moments of extreme uncertainty like that, which is caused by COVID, 19, public investment allows for a bridge over the uncertainty and provides the private sector with opportunities for profitable investment. Specifically, we estimate that multipliers are elevated under the circumstances of 1% of GDP expansion in public investment in uh, advanced and emerging market economies would lead to an increase in GDP of 27 uh, percent because it would motivate private investment to increase by 10 percent and uh, more importantly private and public investment would lead to employment creation of uh, between 20 and 33 million yeah. jobs according to our estimates <clears throat> public investment is always difficult uh, tom because the uh, payoff normally comes uh, later it's only when uh, public investment affects potential uh, output right. that the benefits <clears throat> come to fruition. And that takes time, and the political systems around the world are not patient. I, I want to, in the time that we've got left, Dr. Gaspar, talk about the little g. There is a great assumption in our crisis with the expansion of fiscal deficits, the expansion of trade deficits in selected countries, that we will, quote-unquote, grow our way out of this. How do you respond to that maxim? So we do have, for the first time since the start of uh, COVID-19, we have a medium-term projection, so we can actually answer uh, your uh, question. We do see some permanent scarring in terms of the level of uh, output, but not in terms of the growth rate. So basically there's a permanent loss but the growth rate regains. That is crucial for the public debt to GDP ratio going Mm -hmm. forward. We see this jump up in uh, 2020. Uh, Public debt goes from 83% of GDP in 2019 to 98.7 at world level. It's a very strong jump up. But wait, Tom, in countries like the US or the UK, the jump up is even greater at more than 20% of uh, GDP. But going forward, 
uh, very low uh, interest rates for long and the rebound in economic activity means that the contribution of uh, uh, the interest payments and growth actually helps uh, public debt coming down. And there is also <clears throat> a uh, correction in our baseline of the uh, primary, mm -hmm. uh, primary deficit. So the primary deficit comes down and the debt level at world level stabilizes at around right. 100% of GDP. If I could fold one final question into what we've observed this morning in Europe, which is a real reaffirmation of disinflationary tendencies. Vitor Gaspar on the experiment of negative interest rates. How has that worked? Look, uh, central banks have for many years developed uh, monetary policy strategies based on a monetary transmission mechanism uh, that uh, relies on uh, interest rates. Now, when inflation is uh, very low, when interest rates are very low, there are constraints on the traditional monetary transmission mechanism. That does, uh, that does bring uh, additional uncertainty. We have less knowledge about the transmission mechanism under those circumstances. And that's one of the reasons why central banks around the world are conducting uh, monetary policy mm -hmm. strategy reviews. I mean, it's very interesting. Vitor Gaspar there with a really important point. We have less information. I can't say enough about the three publications of the IMF always at their October meetings. The Blue Book gets all the press, all the glory. The mathiness of the Green Book on financial stability is important. But the, the benchmark of this is the balance sheet as witnessed by Vitor Gaspar's work uh, at the IMF on fiscal affairs. I urge any of you to consider that uh, at the IMF as well. It is always good to speak with Jared Bernstein, his wonderful work in think tanks over the years, Economic Policy Institute, and now Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, of course, his advice to Vice President Biden, when Vice President Biden was vice president, and still advising Mr. Biden as we go 19 days uh, to the election. Jared, thank you so much for uh, being with us. I, I, I want to frame out the hope that's out there by many, including Republicans, of stimulus after an inauguration day in January. Now, I know you and I are going to say, well, we don't know what's going to happen. Let's assume we don't know what's going to happen. But away from President Biden or away from President Trump, February 1st, what is the most efficacious stimulus for Jared Bernstein? The biggest bang for the buck, that is, it gets the resources to people who will spend, not save, and to businesses that uh, are teetering on the edge and to state and local governments who have to balance their budgets every year. And it doesn't waste a dollar of stimulus on low multiplier kinds of projects to, uh, you know, high end uh, tax cuts or corporations that don't need the help. So that speaks to nutritional support, as I mentioned, state and local budgets, <clears throat> enhanced UI benefits, anti eviction, those kinds of, well, uh, those kinds of policies. To people, towards Trump and away from Biden, there is a distrust that the stimulus will be spent appropriately. In your experience, Jared, and you're a huge Beltway insider, 
Can Washington put enough monitoring on monies to cities, monies to states, to be confident it's spent appropriately? Yeah, really important question, because too often Washington passes things, legislates things, and then just gets out of the way. And that's uh, a recipe for waste. Well, look, this is where Biden's muscle memory really comes into play. There we are. Uh, when he, when, he, uh, when he oversaw the implementation and execution of the Recovery Act back in uh, 2009 and 10, not only were there a set of controls set up, there was uh, the, uh, what was called the RAT board, which was the transparency board, to make sure uh, the dollars were appropriately spent. Biden was literally on the phone <laughs> to small-town mayors who couldn't understand why the vice president had just called them, uh, explaining what uh, needed to happen with their fiscal relief checks. Uh, so uh, it mm-hmm. really is a matter of execution, and that's something he highly, highly values. Will President Biden raise our taxes? Uh, he's been very clear about this. The tax increases only affect those above 400,000 AGI, uh, adjusted gross income, unless we're talking about the capital gains increase. Uh, that doesn't kick in until a threshold above a million. And he has been extremely rigorous in his instructions to his team to make sure taxes don't go up a dime below, below those thresholds. We welcome all of you from sea to shining sea with a question for Jared Bernstein that comes up occasionally. Occasionally, uh, Jared, and that is okay. You got a four hundred thousand AGI, but that's a different statistic in fancy Connecticut than it is in pick another state. Let's take Idaho, a very Republican state. Why can't we set a tax hurdle rate to higher taxes based on where a person lives and what the expenses are there. Why can't we do that? We put a guy oh, in the moon. Boy, you know, to me, I'll tell you, you know, I hear where you're coming from, and you're absolutely right. You know, prices and income is different across states. But uh, any complexity you add to the tax code is a recipe for avoidance and evasion. Yeah, I see all kinds of people trying to establish their address in the most favorable places if you go that route. Oh, oh, come on. But we do this in Florida. I mean, you know, everybody's down there, you know, X number of days, 182 days a year to get a step. I mean, you come on, Jared, you could set up rules so that 400,000 in Idaho is $482,300 in some Tony suburb in New Jersey. I mean, I do think you're on to something here. I probably wouldn't go. Uh, I'm just looking for a job. I mean, if if, if Biden Uh, wins, Jared, you got to get me. You know, I just want to go down and. I'll, I'll clean waste baskets. For out for you. Well, look, uh, first of all, you, you need to stay where you are. Yesterday, I, I wanted to tell you this. Yesterday, I was driving around. I put on your show. I learned five things in about three minutes listening to you and your colleagues. So keep, you got to keep doing what you're doing. Listen, one point you're making here, I really want to lean into because it's something that uh, Biden uh, also values highly here, and that's tax compliance. We have defunded the IRS. Uh, the auditing function is uh, is a fraction of what it used to be. And we're leaving hundreds of billions of taxes on the table in the tax gap. These are not these are not taxes avoided. These are taxes evaded. So getting the IRS back in the business of enforcing the code is, yeah. is really important. I want you to speak to Republicans. And let's just say there's a set of Republicans possibly that don't want to vote for their candidate. I want you to sell them right now of doing what Mrs. McCain is doing, which is waltzing across the aisle. Sell them right now, Mr. Bernstein. 
I guess I would say that if uh, if you look out there, if you're in the finan- uh, folks who are listening, uh, if you're in the financial markets, if you're in the household sector, if you're in the business sector, uh, you, you have to ask yourself two things. First, the old Ronald Reagan question, are you better off than you were four years ago? Uh, and if you are someone who's struggling with employment, with health care, with uh, with sending your kids back to school, with uh, some of the existential fallout from this uh, virus and the epic failure of the Trump administration, the answer is going to mm-hmm. be no to that. But don't just ask yourself that. Ask yourself if we can take four more years of this Trumpian chaos, of this dysfunctional government mm-hmm. governance, of this massive hostility to uh, other countries and our trading partners. Uh, and, you know, I think the answer to that right. uh, is uh, to both of those questions is no. Jared Bernstein, you've done a lifetime of work on this, on policy, on medical. And, of course, the judiciary will be looking at the Affordable Care Act here at, at some point. I want you to address the idea now that the Affordable Care Act tilts us towards a socialism of medicine. Does it? Not even close. I mean, the Affordable Care Act uh, was in part constructed so that those who wanted to keep their private insurers in place could do so. I mean, that was a, uh, that was a, a key value of that. Because actually, if you ask people, do you want you know, something like Medicare for all, people will say yes, but then they'll also insist that they keep uh, uh, their access to their current situation. So you, you really have to try to square that circle. You're going to try to meet people where they are. And, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, the private insurers and, the, and many of the doctors and hospitals mm-hmm. actually supported the ACA. Now, some people would view that as a feature. Some would view it as a bug. Uh, but once you add a public option mm-hmm. to the program, which is what uh, what uh, Vice President Biden wants to do, then I really think you have the best of both worlds. Too short a conversation. Jared Bernstein, thank you so much with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and, of course, his advice and assistance to uh, Mr. Biden of Delaware. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 